Hello and welcome to Take My Advice. I'm not using it. My name's Ollie Henderson and I'm back with the fourth series of this podcast after a very short interlude. Over the next few weeks, I've got some fantastic guests, many of whom are experienced at scaling startups and working within some of the most successful organizations in the world. We'll be talking about all manner of subjects from music and technology to private equity, global HR, and we'll focus on some of the themes which are likely to define the future of work over the next three to five years. The first guest in this series, I'm pleased to say, is Will Page. Will is the former chief economist of Spotify and the PRS for Music, where he pioneered rockonomics. At PRS, he published work on Radioheads in Rainbows and the Save BBC Six Music campaign. At Spotify, he helped redefine catalogue and articulated the global value of music copyright. In this episode, we discuss how Will's determination to work in the music business led to him becoming the industry's first chief economist. We also explore the concept of builders and farmers in tech businesses, as Will explains how Spotify founder and CEO Daniel X successfully bridges the gap between both. There's also a conversation about the danger of NPS, Net Promoter Score, the rising importance of consumption over transaction data, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and how data has impacted the creative process in music. Lots to take in and lots to learn. I hope you enjoy. So without further ado, here's my interview with Will Page. So, Will, thanks so much for joining me today. I, first of all, wanted to mention, I have read your book over the past week, but it's not the first time that I've read your work. At the very beginning of your book, you mentioned your previous career, I guess, and then I I dug out a copy of Straight No Chaser. I I was, for many years, Uh. a Straight No Chaser subscriber, and then when I read that you had been a journalist for the magazine, I dug out one of the more recent copies and found that you'd also contributed towards those issue number 99 yeah, yeah. four page feature on kcrw radio station in santa monica california yeah so that, that was the, the the first break i ever got in the business was writing for straight no chaser in 2002 where i got to do 650 words on the yeah. north sea jazz festival which was in den haag yeah. in netherlands and I owe Paul Bradshaw and Giles Peters in my career because just by opening that door allowed me to get one foot into the music industry. I mean, I was in a bedroom in Edinburgh at the time, but yeah. you know, it allowed me to tap in and start this journey. Well, up until a few years ago, Paul and Giles lived around the corner from me in Stoke Newington in London. I, I don't know Paul very well, but I, I know Giles a little bit. And I'd imagine it was fun working with those guys back in those days. We must have been writing about some interesting stuff. Chaotic, chaotic. I mean, <laughs> wasn't the best run magazine, but I think that's what made it so special. You know, adverts yeah. were concerts coming out in publications that were two months after the concert took place. All that kind of stuff <laughs> was, uh, yeah, the, the, the madness made it so magical. Yeah, absolutely. It's a shame it's not in uh, regular publication, but the quality when they are published now is still high. Fingers crossed we continue. Well, we see that again in the future. But anyway, I thought I'd mention that. As I said, I, I, I came to your book after we spoke last week. Um Probably the obvious place to start is to get an understanding of what Tarzan economics means, because that's the title of the book. Yeah, sure. The term comes from a technologist called Jim Griffin, um, a real inspiration to me over a decade and a half, but also going back way beyond my first meeting with him, he was responsible for the first ever digital file sold in the music industry, which was Aerosmith in 1995. Mm. They did that. So a technologist who's been there, seen it, done it all long before we thought disruption really began. And uh, I met him in a a Norwegian bar in 2007. 
and he has this huge loud voice, an incredible public speaker. You know, you can hear him from Sweden when he was talking that night. <laughs> and I, 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 he was he came up with this term Tarzan economics to describe the predicament that we all face, at least in the music industry, and I believe now everybody is facing, which is that you you have this tendency to hold on to the old line of doing business, the old way, the belief that people will still buy CDs and break their fingernails as they open them and go back to mm. purchasing downloads at a time when piracy, online piracy on P2P sites was rampant. The belief that we're going to stick to that old vine and a reluctance to reach out to a new vine called streaming or an access model through a fear of the unknown. And it captured a 20-year kind of head start that music's had with dealing with disruption and that for the first 10 years, we did hold on to that old vine and we made a dog's dinner of dealing with disruption. We spent millions in litigation. We lost billions in revenue. That's not sustainable. And then in the second 10 years, we reached out to the new vine called Streaming and have never looked back since. And the recovery you're seeing in music today is to the envy of everyone else. So not just our journey, you know, the first to suffer, the first to recover, but where we are now is almost like a beacon of hope for many other industries trying to deal with the same predicament. And maybe to wrap that up, I should also mention that thanks to the extortionate Norwegian bar prices that night, I, may, I remained sober enough to remember that term. I wrote it down. <laughs> it was like Tarzan Economics with a great visualization of holding on and when to let go. And when does the old vine let go of you even? Like this visualization of change. And one day I'm going to do a book with that as a title and... Yeah, I stayed sober enough to make that a reality, and here we are today. <laughs> nice. Our lives may be nearly crossed again, actually. In about 2005, I had an interview with the MCPS PRS Alliance, as it was deemed then. There was a graduate mm-hmm. scheme between the organisations. The first job in music was at the PRS. Um, Correct. He described as a man, obviously, who's uh, very interested in music and was uh, an economist, how you made that leap into that role. Uh, by luck, and I genuinely mean by luck, it's a crazy story. Um, I was in the Scottish government, part of the UK government economic service, if you will, um, doing some really boring, tedious work. I think on March the 16th, 2006 was the day it all happened. I, I was working in local income tax reform, which is, you know, would send you everybody to sleep if I was to talk about that on your podcast. <laughs> Left, you know, to get the bus to get home back that, that evening in Edinburgh. And on the bus was a Financial Times newspaper. Picked it up. Don't usually pick up newspapers on buses, but the FT, you know, is, is of a quality where the benefits exceed the costs. And uh, in the article, in, in the newspaper, I found this article, which had this incredible headline called Digital Ants Wreck the Music Industry's Picnic. And... For those four years up in Edinburgh, all I was doing was desperately trying to find a role for an economist in the music industry. And nobody was hiring. There's no job adverts. Nobody was demanding an economist. And I couldn't supply that role. And this article just made me think, wait a second, somebody else is thinking like me about what's happening to copyright. What's happening to copyright, which when you think about the word, has lost the right to control copying. You know, people are going to the internet and finding any song they wanted and not having to pay for it. Who wrote the article? Adam Singer, the chief executive then of the Performing Rights Society. My dad always raised me never to be shy approaching people. So I simply wrote him a letter, you know, complimenting on his article, correcting it where it was a little bit misplaced and um, sent it off. And two weeks later, the phone goes inside the Scottish government. Adam Singer's on the phone. He wants me to travel to London to meet him. Spent a day with me asking me questions about how would an economist approach this? How would an economist approach that? Uh, one quick example is um, how would you price a music catalogue? 
I have no idea. Mm. Never done that before. Don't think I ever will. But the economics, you can use principles, and my book refers to principles, principles to cobble together some sort of meaningful answer. So pricing a music catalog is really about price discovery. What is the price that you wish to discover for that catalog? And price discovery is really about auctions. So I talked at length about auction design. You can have an ascending price auction, what we're familiar with here, or you look at how you sell flowers in Amsterdam or how you sell fish in Israel, you can have a descending price auction, start at the top and work the clock backwards, first in, Mm. first out. So I looked at all these different ways of designing an auction to discover the price of a music catalog. And Adam turned to me and said, for 70 years, I don't think the music business has ever thought like this. Mm. I'm like, aha, the door is beginning to widen here. And came back up to Scotland. My sister was like, don't build your hopes up. It'll just be another failed interview. And within 48 hours, I think they called me back and made me the chief economist of the PRS. So had I not sat on that bus and had I not picked up that newspaper, I certainly wouldn't be speaking to you now. Yeah. Well, and and, and also, had you not put yourself out there and continued to... So, you know, to, to look for opportunities within the industry that you clearly wanted to find a career. Right. That's, that's an I important mean, point. To hop, skip and jump to the last line of the book, I say, don't wait for your job description, create your job description. And I really mean that. And if I'm ever doing sort of work at schools or colleges or universities, I really hammer that point home. I mean, do not yeah. be thinking what's out there in a the job market. Be thinking, what have I got that I could bring to those organizations? Do it the other way around. Supply creates demand, not demand creates yeah. supply. Yeah. I think that's really interesting point given the time we're at now as well just i think there seems to be there seems to be opportunities which haven't yet been defined i think that's the the thing and i think this you can be very limited i think if you're you know any stage of your career frankly but particularly if you're early on in your career thinking well i want to be x y and z something that already exists and as you've described it doesn't necessarily need to be like that the sort of idea around category creation in industry and it's probably the same within job roles i think if you position yourself as an expert and often combining two things perhaps which haven't yet been combined as you did then there could be opportunities which you haven't yet imagined yeah i mean i think there's two things to say there from a top-down perspective i think you know the british university system is incredibly specialized like my best friend mm-hmm. at university dear friend Nick Spence, like he went to university in Scotland, you can get to university at the age of 17, and graduated with a chemical engineering degree from Strathclyde, one of the best places in the world to do chemical engineering, at the age of 20, 21. And it's like, do you really know at the age of 21 that you want to be a chemical engineer? As it happens, he's Mm. been a very successful chemical engineer, but that's a very young age to determine which form of engineering you want to pursue. Yeah. And then from a bottom-up perspective, just given the scale of disruption that everybody is experiencing, individuals, organizations, political institutions even, um, it's very hard to trust the current job descriptions are drafted correctly for their needs. I mean, a yeah. smart, a street smart person would question that logic and say, no, I know what you guys need and I'm going to provide it to you. And that's exactly yeah. what I did 15 years ago was nobody was advertising for an economist. Lawyers, lots of them. Marketing, we'll yeah. have that too. But economists, why on earth would we need economists? And mm. I was like, I believe this business is falling off a cliff and economics can help turn it around. And there's my job description. Hire me if you want. That was my approach. Yeah. There's a big there's a big piece around measurement actually within work at the moment. I think there's, as, as we're redefining what people's jobs look like. And I, I talk a lot about how, the importance of how much you work, as in from a time point of view, is is is, is rarely that relevant. It's more about the value that you bring, the outcomes that you 
you deliver. But I think a lot of businesses struggle with that measurement piece. Measurements in general are pretty difficult to pin down. And there's obviously part of your book where you talk about data and it's the old adage, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And it's so true, both, you know, in so many aspects of business and it's applicable to to work and jobs as well. If you have a singular job description, the idea that that would encompass 50 different people within the department, each with the same job title is crazy, really. Everyone has very different skills to bring to the table. Yeah, if I, if I think about, you know, one of the things I do in the conclusion of the book is to give you a taxonomy of working out who you are. I use these, these really popular terms I coin called builders and farmers, like where in the lifespan of a tech company do you belong? And that's really important. That's really, really important, uh, you know, thing to have in your in your mind. But an example of what builders were not used to, but farmers would expect as a given, is a career development framework. If you're a builder mm. in a tech firm, scaling up from scratch, building something out of nothing, eight people in a warehouse in the east end of London, trying to do some magic with with nuts and bolts, um, you know, barely getting funding for the next quarter survival, you know, a career development framework. <laughs> It kind of presumes we know where we're going. We don't. We're designing a plane while yeah. we're in flight here. Come on. How can you have a development framework for yeah. that? You know, we don't even know what the framework of the plane looks like. We've yet to design the damn thing. Whereas for farmers, those people who come into a tech company after it goes public, after you have to deal with regulation, after you have to deliver profitability, that type of thing is a given and they can't work without it. Like, hey, where will I be the next year? Um, yeah. You'll be working here hoping that we're going to survive. No, no, no. I need to know where my next promotion is due. And it's, it's just a very interesting mindset. And, you know, I think the, the interesting thing there is to not, you know, promote one over the other. A builder is better than a farmer or whatever. It's, it's just to know where in the lifespan of a company you belong because you don't belong there forever. And yeah. what I saw at Spotify and what I see at lots of tech companies around the world is at that point of going public, you'll see the builders leave and the farmers come in. Where are the builders going? They're going right back to the bottom to start a new startup what the farmer's doing, building all the rigid frameworks that a normal company would require in order to be a yeah. sustained success. That's not a bad thing. That's just recognizing you don't belong in a tech company forever. And I think that applies beyond tech as well. I think a lot of a lot of the frustrations people feel at work is when they realize they've actually outgrown where they belong in that environment. Yeah, absolutely. So but where does Daniel X sit in that? Because he's clearly a builder but he's not doing a bad job with the farming. Am I, am I misunderstanding the definitions or is it just no. that you have these exceptional characters who occasionally can just bridge that gap? Daniel's a unique person because, well, first of all, think about culture and location. Yes, Spotify's listed on the New York Stock Exchange, but still to this day, it's officially headquartered in Stockholm and that's where he considers his home. And that's a very, mm. very different culture. You can actually have a more distinct culture within the, the cultures of Europe, as it were, uh, as Swedish compared to people in New York. So, you know, yeah. bridging that cultural gap is an interesting angle to take. But um, yeah, he he's managed to kind of build a podcast business whilst farming a music business. And yeah, I can give right. you a really accurate example of that from the book, which is to look at Uber. Um, Uber makes money when they deliver Oliver home, that is lifts, that's profitable. They lose money when they deliver Oliver and his family food. So the farmers are operating the lift side of the business and the builders are trying to scale up the food side of the business and, you know, making money, driving you home, losing money, delivering you food is a great example of showing how these companies can encompass both often by having different divisions. So I would say music is at the farming stage at Spotify now, whereas podcast is clearly at the building stage. Right. And that clearly applies to you as well. What, did you reach a point with Spotify where you thought you're, 
interests your skills better off within a different context you felt like your journey was at an end with Spotify how how did you come to that uh, kind of resolution not really Uh, I I think I mean I carry on working with the company I've done some great work with them since starting on the book which is great Um, Mm. but for me after I mean you can date your Spotify years when you know Daniel Ek when he had hair so I've known him a long time (laughs) Um, but you know for me I, I was I was trying to work out what plan B would be after best part of a decade inside the company, getting the company public and thinking what next. And you have to think what next, like where in the Mm. lifespan of that company do you belong? And the passion for me was teaching always has been always will be particularly teaching to an audience that doesn't think they're going to understand economics, definitely doesn't want to understand economics, but has to, that's the, the, the church I want to preach to. And yeah. I you know from writing the induction program at Spotify to working with schools and colleges and here in London and around the country, I thought, you know, what a great thing to do is be to teach at scale is to work on the book. And there was an ambition of yeah. mine going way back, you know, pre-moving to London was always to do this book. And uh, you know, it felt the time was right to to take that chance, take that leap of faith. And in September 2019, I based myself in the British Library all alone. And now it feels like I'm coming out of my back cave and realizing what daylight looks like. So it's great to see the end of that journey. <laughs> and are you, you're doing some teaching at London School of Economics, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was made a fellow of LSE uh, last year, in January last year. I had my own office with a bath and a shower. Love pointing that out. Wow. On LinkedIn okay. fields. So living the high life, as, as <laughs> the LSE go, I got really lucky. Um, and then did some great work on social impact investing, which is what the Marshall Institute is really sort of driving towards. And then mm-hmm. this year, they've made me a fellow of the European Institute. And something I want to pioneer there is uh, artist origins. So being able to scale every artist on Spotify by origin and to look at how right. music is traveling. So within the single market of Europe, do we see more? How could you say it? Let's think of a right word here velocity or circulation of repertoire you know are more yeah. people outside of france listening to french repertoire than in the cd or the download era mm. um there's a great charity called doctors without borders and i want to yeah. play on those words i call it playlist without borders which is when streaming breaks down borders what happens does america just dominate the world or do we become much more culturally diverse and you know if yeah. we do what, what what does culturally diverse actually mean when you have to define it not just coffee table it but actually say this is more culturally diverse than this what makes it distinct yeah. i want to do some work with the llc on, on that topic yeah and i also i read i read uh, an article you wrote a couple of weeks ago um on the llc blog it really really interesting concept and I, I guess this is where the application of the lessons learned by music applies to other industries and you, mm-hmm. you were talking that about the, the the principle that the ideas in our heads mm-hmm. are worth more than the roofs above them so can you explain what you, what you mean by that and how that relates and, and i suppose that relationship between consumption and how we can understand consumption and and the difference between that and sales data for example yeah so that that point has been picked up by a certain politician at number 11 downing street which is reassuring that we're beginning to get the message across without crossing over and so it's just fascinating to think about how you measure the economy and when we say measure you know how you judge the economy because measurement is a function of judgments you judge what you want to measure an inflation basket is a judgment call of what goods will measure the prices at yeah i mean okay maybe i'm not you know familiar with any of those goods in the government's inflation basket that means that inflation metric has got nothing to do with my life but it's still what we 
live and die by. It's still what the bond market responds to. You know, it's it's there. It's taken as a given. So I'm trying that in the work around government, trying to give the reader the confidence to question these judgments. I mean, I mean, I stood yeah. inflation for a second. Did you know that our Office of National Statistics has got no way of measuring multiples in pharmacies? Small part of the world agreed, boots, super drug, but follow me. Yeah. They have no way of controlling for buy one, get one free, or buy two, get the third half price. <laughs> and I asked him about this. I said, that's crazy. I mean, this is just a small part of the basket, but it's an important yeah. part of the basket. This is how retail works. And their response was, well, they said, because it's just a small number of items that are affected by it. I was like, let me plot to you a long tail chart. That small number of items makes up 95% of the spend. Pantene yeah. shampoo is buy one, get one free. That's yeah. how it's priced. That's price in the basket. But, you know, that doesn't feature in our measure of inflation that we're supposed to trust. So right. you know, when you hear on the BBC News, inflation went from 1.8% to 2.1%. Like, really? Is that <laughs> really relevant to my life? So, you know, coming back to the... The chart in the LSE piece, what I looked at there was just you know, residential real estate and the economic accounts. How do they measure that? That's a, that's another bogus figure we can go into. But intellectual property as well. And by the time I moved to London, uh, residential real estate was really high and intellectual property was really low. Um, that is, buildings were worth more than ideas. What's happened since... Mm-hmm. The housing market collapsed, but the value of ideas grew. And we're now in a position where intellectual property is not just worth more than residential real estate to the economy, but the gap is widening. Now, how on earth do you measure intellectual property in something called gross domestic product invented by Simon Kuznets in 1939 to work out whether a country could go to war? For me, it's just a square peg round hole situation. And credit to our government. They've done some great work on you know, raising questions about this. Charlie Bean Review was a fantastic piece of work. The Bank of England, Diane Coyle, especially one of my mentors, are bringing this to life. But it's just, what are we actually trying to measure? So if I kind of look at a quick example from Spotify, we used to measure transactions. You know, Ollie buys a CD, Ollie takes that CD home, Ollie might listen to one or two songs and then lose the CD under a sofa. Fine. Now we measure consumption. Which songs yeah. are he listening to? What time of day is he listening? What source of streams are they listening on? We have consumption, not transactions. If you think about perhaps the Chancellor of the Exchequer responding to car sales data, let's say car sales are up 2% last quarter on the previous quarter prior year. Well, six months ago, we knew we sold 2% more cars than we did 80 months ago is what we're actually saying. That's the way the data is pulled together. Is that relevant? Or would you rather know how those cars are being used? Perhaps we're selling more cars, mm. more than we're sitting in garages. Who knows? You don't have the consumption of car data. All you have is the transaction of car data. And the transactions of car data are about as useful as Ollie buying a CD. The consumption yeah. of car data would be as much more valuable, such as how is Ollie listening to the music? And that's the kind of shift, the TARS in economics, if you like. That's the TARS in economics that has to play out in government. It's letting go of transactional data and grabbing onto consumption analytics. Yeah. So we talked a bit about macro data there and return to a bit of micro. I'm really interested in your views on NPS or Net Promoter Score because the many businesses attach themselves to this metric. And I'll be honest, I have used it as well with businesses that I've run. It seems fundamentally a good idea. It's a very simple metric. It seems like a simple metric. What have we been getting wrong? 
npsistheworst.com. Join the fight. We have a website and we have swag <laughs> where you can buy T-shirts, nappies, bags with NPS is the worst of the slogan. It really needs to measure. go. It needs to go. I mean, it's the dumbest metric ever. And it really raises questions about management, people you'd aspire to in an organization that they put so much faith in this one simple number to solve all of their problems. It doesn't. Mm. It makes the problem worse. And I take it apart in the book. Um, I'm not alone. Uh, Jerry Swall, a great UX design expert, does a great job too. And like I say, we have the website up and running now. But to, to actually have the confidence to raise your hand to management and say, why do we do this? Let me just give you one very example. Anyway, I, we could talk NPS till the cows come home. But here's one simple example of why it's the dumbest <laughs> metric possible that so many leaders put their faith in. Because it's so ubiquitous, because it's so pervasive, because we all know the scoring system, the fact you have detractors, which are six or less, and promoters, which are nine and tens above, because we have that, we gain the system. So if you think the service mm. in that restaurant was a seven, but you really want to help the restaurant, you'll elevate it to a nine, so your score counts. So you cannot trust yeah. the scoring that's happening because this warped metric has been so successful. It's like endogeneity overdrive, which is because it's achieved what it wanted to achieve, which is becoming this ubiquitous metric that we measure everything by, stupid idea in my opinion, it actually becomes, you know, it's a source of its own failure. We all know the scoring mechanism that happens behind the curtain. We all gain the system, so you can't trust the scores. I mean, that's just one of a thousand issues I have with this metric. Um, yeah. In the book, I actually make a point of... I use Vodafone as my mobile phone operator, you know, pretty terrible, but relatively speaking, as terrible as anyone else. Um, they always send me NPS scores to ask me questions. They never once say, have you recommended WhatsApp to a friend? Should they? Have they ever asked mm. you? What's the most important question a, a dinosaur telco should be asking its customers, which is they don't use that dinosaur telco's network anymore? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so actually that relates to the previous talking point, actually, because consumption is a much better indicator, isn't it, that somebody is um, a promoter of your product. I mean, if you're looking at SaaS businesses, for example, the determinant factor in whether somebody re remains a subscriber is likely how much and how um, effectively they're using the platform, not what score they give somebody in an arbitrary survey. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And by the way, let's remind ourselves, this arbitrary survey done at the end is for those who complete the task. Those who became yeah. disillusioned with the offer and peeled off halfway through or felt uncomfortable and didn't complete it will not complete an NPS score. So your score is inherently biased based around those who got to the end of the UX journey as yeah. opposed to those who quit halfway through. Again, another, like, it's just like an onion, just layer and layer of misleading signals that come from this metric that we still use. That management, like, yeah. you can spend, like, yeah. 30000 on an MBA course to be taught that this stuff is credible. It's wrong. It's garbage. Trash. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's well, crazy. And it's how, how obvious the errors are, and nobody seems to want to call them out. So, Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you've convinced me. It's one of those things, isn't it? it however critical you are of any aspect of the business you're working with in or running sometimes there's just blank there are blind spots occasionally and uh you've highlighted something and as soon as you explained it to me it seemed as ridiculous as uh, you just framed it so yeah a great thanks i really like <laughs> simon cynic and he talks about being the stupidest person yeah. in the room and i really love that mentality of just being brave enough to raise your hand and say sorry that doesn't make sense i know there's a bunch of people with phd sitting around yeah. nodding like it does 
but it doesn't make sense to me. And more often than not, if you have the confidence just to raise that hand and be the dumb kid in the classroom, you're actually the smartest person in the room mm. because common sense gets yeah. lost with all the complexity we're dealing with in the workspace. It really does. Yeah, very true. So a couple more things I just wanted to ask you about, and actually they relate to creativity. So clearly we've we, we talked about data and, and technology. I, I'm interested how the attention economy, and perhaps you can explain what that, that means, mm. has fundamentally affected creative output. So if you think about the music that we listen to, if you hadn't really thought about this, you would imagine that you know music evolves, but it basically fits a very similar structure as it always has done in terms of the, the structure of a pop song. But you explain in your book that isn't necessarily the case, and actually the ways in which we consume the media, in this case music, has actually affected the way that people write songs. Yeah. Are you a fan of the band U2? Uh, I I don't mind you two. I'm, you I'd say I'm, I'm neutral on them. <laughs> um, you two, me neither. There's a joke for you. Um, no, it's the band you two, and without doubt, I think one of their greatest songs was "Where the Streets Have No Name." Yeah, Everybody of our can resonate with that song, particularly the video. Yeah. You know, shot in LA on top of a rooftop, um, as well. Um, it's just interesting to go back to that song as my example where it takes two minutes and nine seconds before you hear Bono's voice. And then yeah. you think about the hit that Lil Nas X had, which was fading out. You know, it was wrapping up around about two minutes and nine seconds. So without doubt, the hits today, the songs are getting shorter. They're definitely coming in under three minutes, often around about two minutes, 30. And if you're a TikToker, let's just call it 30 seconds before you swipe. Um, so the songs are getting yeah. shorter these days, which I think is reflective of attention spans. Um, attention spans are getting shorter. Songs are getting shorter. Uh, but not just that. The, the model that you get compensated on from streaming is affecting how the songs are written. So in, in, in streaming, there's two rules. One, you only get paid when you've been played for more than 30 seconds. And two, you don't get paid a second more, a penny more, for lasting a second more. There's no duration-based monetization. Yeah. yeah. So what songwriters are now doing is they're shoving the chorus right at the front because I need to hook you in for 30 seconds to get paid. And if I don't get paid a penny more for lasting a second yeah. more, why should this song last more than two minutes, 30 seconds in length? And it's a very interesting way in which the tail is wagging the dog. The business model is affecting the art. Um, it, and you're seeing it everywhere. Drake, for example, I think he had 27 songs in his last album. Some lasted 48 seconds long. Can anyone spot what he's doing? Don't need to be an economist to see this. Mm -hmm. But the reassuring point, or the reassuringly worryingly point here, is we've been here before many, many times. If you go back to the late 50s, early 60s, the mafia would run jukeboxes in America, and they would demand that songs lasted 2 minutes, 30 seconds. Take Motown as an example. Why? Because it maximized the revenue yeah. from the jukebox. So this business of show business, if you like, you know, it's like a chicken and egg. Does a show affect the business or the business affect the show? What you're seeing now, and it's a function of A, the economics of streaming, but B, the psychology of our attention spans, is yeah, you're right. Songs are getting shorter and courses are going to the front. Don't bore us, get us to the chorus, the old adage. <laughs> exactly. And, and another related to where creativity and technology overlap. So there's we're recording in April 2021. There's been a lot of talk recently about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And, you know, essentially that's a, a different unit of data 
And I'm wondering how, whether you've got a view on how you anticipate new technologies like blockchains and units of data like NFTs mm-hmm. affecting the music business and opportunities within the music business. Yeah, well, it's a sign that NFTs came to light after my manuscript was handed in, so I didn't get to rewrite it to factor that in. But the beautiful thing about the book and what I said about my first interview with Adam Singer at the PRS is you can use principles which are future-proofed. So there's a lot of material yeah. in the book, whilst not referring to NFTs directly, that you can bring to light. And here, here's one. And in the first chapter of the book, I look at what happened to music as it transitioned from a CD to downloads to piracy to streaming. And the CD was essentially a private good, which meant it fulfilled two criteria. Firstly, it was scarce. There's one copy of that CD left on the shelf of HMV, and if I get it, Ollie can't. There's only one copy. And two, it was excludable. There's a big nasty security guard at the door forcing you to pay. You couldn't just run out of the shop with it. Scarce and excludable, a private good. And you look yeah. at what happened to digital media, both those barriers were broken down. You know, there's 60 million songs on Spotify today. We could all stream them today and they'll still be there tomorrow. There's no scarcity. And then to uh, excludability, you know, what piracy did was remove the security guard. You could get what you wanted from the internet for free, and that's still the case. Um, what I think NFTs are doing is they're taking that two by two framework, which I lay out in the first chapter and desperately trying to reintroduce scarcity to digital goods. That's a really good way of applying the book to a subject which has happened since the book was submitted in a very powerful mechanism, which is how on Mm. earth can I get scarcity back into digital media? Any way, any wacky way possible, doesn't matter how crazy the idea is, but if it creates scarcity, it creates price. If it creates price, I can create auctions. If it creates auctions, then we can see some of the headlines that we've seen recently with people like Grimes walking out with like tens of millions of dollars from an NFT project. I think we've been here before, though. Um, mm. Give you a very quick example. In 1975, the rock band Kiss, if you remember the band Kiss, famous for trying to trademark the dollar bill sign. Yeah. It's a true story. Gene Simmons tried to trademark the US dollar symbol. <laughs> he also sold Kiss toilet paper to his super fans. I always loved that one. Um, but they, uh, they had a competition where they said, uh, for the lucky Kiss fans... Five winners will get a photograph of the band with their makeup, their famous black and white makeup, taken off. So for the first time in the band's history, you can right. see what the real band looked yeah, like. Yeah. You know, there was like scary images of the makeup, but the drummer, I think he had, his makeup was to look like a hamster, perhaps less scary. But you know, the, the band <laughs> yeah. would give five winners of this competition five photographs in an envelope with the makeup taken off. Now here's a clever bit. When the lucky five winners got that envelope in the post, and they busily opened it, you know, as a very secure envelope to see the band without the makeup. You know what happened? Natural light destroyed the photograph. So you had five seconds making yeah. the band with the makeup removed. So they invented scarcity yeah. through what essentially was a sort of digital-ish media format and created a huge hype around it. Now, yeah, all I'm amazing. saying is that was 1975 with Gene Simmons. Here we are in 2021. I'm not sure how much has changed in terms of the hype and hysteria, but underneath it is a desire to create scarcity. Yeah, it's actually a neat example because it sort of combines the pseudonymity which exists within that sort of crypto world as well. Because of course that is that was their that was their their very their, their whole shtick, wasn't it? Yeah. It's sort of you know a different character reve- revealing who they really are. Yeah, you could pick your toilet paper around which character you wanted to. Well, you can take that which way you want, but yeah. I just love the fact yeah. they sold Kiss toilet paper. I thought, you know, of all of all the story, <laughs> rock and roll stories, that's got to be the worst. But uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the mundane meeting the world of entertainment. So, last question, Will. Um, 
obviously you've experienced just sort of seismic shifts in the way the music industry um, has monetized their their content if you like and that's going on in all sorts of industries knowing what you know now if you were looking back to your early career your 22 year old self what would you advise your 22 year old self to do right now in terms of career would you do anything different would you approach things differently that that idea of creating your new role do you think you were cognizant of that at the time or is that something that you've looked back on and realized that you were doing subconsciously i think there's a a real i mean for your audience i think there's a a real cost benefit question around university education which the pandemic has really accelerated people are asking this anyway Mm. we preface this by saying it's happening and that you've got companies like google saying to you know high profile students at school don't bother with university come to google we'll train you up you'll get a google degree as opposed to a stanford degree and it's going on but i think the cost of education is really high and the benefits of education are becoming really questionable in that in technology you know next year's curriculum is probably already going to be out of date so if you're learning SQL, mm. well, what use is that when you should have been learning Google BigQuery? Um, if you're learning Excel, well, what yeah. use is that when the purpose of big data is that it doesn't sit on an Excel spreadsheet anymore? So it's, it's just, um, yeah. I'm beginning to wonder, I get it. The benefits of education, I get all that. But I'm beginning to wonder whether there's a cost-benefit question creeping in there, which is going to be harder and harder for your audience to ignore. Um, as well. And that is education being very complacent. I mean, this time last year, when, you know, yeah. obviously with the Wuhan breakout of the, the pandemic and the question about Chinese students in the UK, do you see the headline where Glasgow University, yeah. that 31% of their income came from China? <laughs> 31% of their business yeah. came from China. And you go to learn portfolio theory. Hold on. <laughs> this is. So yeah. there's all sorts of things yeah. in the university system. There's all sorts of skeletons in their closet that are going to come out. The pension system is a Ponzi scheme, in my opinion, as well. It's the way it's structured. Now, that means that their eye is off the ball. opposed to giving you a relevant education, they're all about pricing as much to foreign students as possible. They've been doing that for 20, 30 years now. And I just think their number's coming up. So yeah. I think that's a big one. And then I just reiterate that point I made at the start, which is don't wait for the job description. That's a mistake that everyone's making. Create a job description. Have the balls to not say, I want to subscribe to be a, a data scientist at this tech company, but I want to you know, ignore your data science and do bring anthropology to this data company because you haven't gotten an anthropologist here. Well, we didn't hire one. Well, let me give you the business case for hiring mm. one and then we can talk. I think that type of approach in a crowded market, you need to stand above the crowd and that type of approach can really help. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, Really appreciate your thoughts and uh, your book, Tarzan Economics, is out now. So I'd, I'd recommend everyone pick themselves up a copy. Cheers, Will. Thank you so much. So that was my interview with Will Page. You'll be able to find links to some of the stuff we discussed in the show notes. But I thought for now I might refer you to a couple of other podcasts which I've created which relate to some of the subjects we discussed. So the first ever Take My Advice I'm Not Using It podcast was with Christopher Lockhead, the godfather of category design and number one podcaster. I mentioned category design in today's show. You can go back and check that episode out to get an understanding of what category design means and how you should approach it. You can also get a sense from that podcast about how to apply it to your own career. 
Likewise, the show I did with Ben Legg, who's the CEO of the Portfolio Collective. In my conversation with Will, we discussed the idea of combining two different interests into one to create your niche. And I discussed this with Ben in relation to the general trend towards portfolio careers, people having multiple strings to their bow. Next week, we've got another great guest. Until then, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Check out my newsletter, Future Work Life, and I'll see you again here next week.